As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, it is brutal out there. Yeah, it really, it really is wild. It's relentless. It's compounding. There's a lot of fear. Um, I guess due to elevated inflation, people are really sort of like feeling like we're in sort of no man's land, at least with respect to the last several decades of how Mm. the economy worked. People don't know. People don't have confidence that anything's working. So people are dumping stuff and they're buying dollars. Yeah, we are recording this on June 13th. Uh, It's Monday. Black Monday is trending on Twitter. It's not like... I just it seems like a little exaggeration. It's like, early in it's the early. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's, yeah. So we'll we'll see what <laughs> we'll happens. See what happens. But what I will say is, on Friday, I think the S and P five hundred was down two point nine percent, something like that, and it has been just incredibly painful for a lot of stocks out there, but tech stocks in particular. Yep, tech stocks in particular, as everyone knows, have gotten crushed, and then of course. That feeds in a very linear way to private tech companies. And right. Of course, we've had this big private tech boom, VC, all these startups and everything. And every late stage private company, you know, aspires to IPO. So if the IPO window is plunging or falling, then that hurts their values. And every mid-stage company aspires to be a late stage company. And every early stage company <laughs> aspires to be a mid-stage company. So there's no way to like avoid the sort of follow on effect. Like in, in individual companies can do fine, but as a whole... What we see in the stock market, I think, pretty straightforwardly translates down into uh, less liquid, riskier private tech companies. Right. So you would assume there's some effect, but obviously because a lot of these companies, well, all of these companies are not listed, you can't actually see what's happening to their valuations in real time. So we can look up the S&P 500 or, you know, Amazon or Alphabet or whatever and see what's happening. It's a little bit harder with some of these startups. The only thing you can do, you know, you can uh, see VC returns and what they tell their investors. But even still, the only time you often like get like a true like mark as in mark to market, I think is like when they do a raise. And of course, no one wants to actually do 
a down round raise. Right. So you never actually get it. So anyway. It's right. A, this is the irony, yeah. right? When when valuations are going up and people are doing repeated fundraising rounds yeah. at higher valuations, everyone issues a press release and yeah. talks about it. And then when things are going in the other direction, it's just silence and crickets. So I'm very pleased to say that today we are going to try to figure out what's been happening in the world of venture capital and startups. We're going to be speaking with Tyler Tringus. He's the founder and general partner of Comp Fund. So Tyler, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Tyler, maybe just to begin, you can tell us a bit more about Calm Fund. What is it and how does it differ from a, a traditional venture capital firm? Yeah, so um, we are an early stage investor in technology companies. So in a lot of ways, we <clears throat> we look a lot like um, you know a, a venture capital firm in, in the sense of we you know invest early, we partner with the founders, we provide community mentorship, resources, all that kind of stuff, and we're we're with them kind of the whole way until they eventually either exit the company or or um, IPO. Um, but um, so, so we share a lot in common in terms of the structure. Um, where we differ is we are one of the only funds doing early stage tech investing with a different thesis than the traditional venture model of basically you could colloquially call it like unicorn hunting, right? Looking for you know billion and ten billion dollar outcomes. Um, and our model is based around the idea that you can now, for maybe the first time in you know, tech investing's history, you can invest pretty early stage in companies that are substantially de-risked and going after sort of um, slightly more niche opportunities where it's just not the same kind of risk profile as a traditional kind of venture, um, you know, winner take all kind of model. And you can build an entirely different sort of approach to portfolio construction around that. So can you explain why the typical VC approach is, as you say, unicorn hunting? And of course, for years, there's like, yeah, well, you know, nine of 10 of our portfolio companies are going to fail, but one of them is going to be the next Airbnb or Uber or Facebook. And that's how that's the game is like, just you just got to hit one. Why has that become or why, especially over the last decade, but probably before, how did that become the dominant strategy that so many firms settled on? I mean, I think the the very simple answer is that's the strategy that worked, right? Um, in the sense that you know people sort of reverse engineer the portfolios that were very successful, and they looked back and they said, "Hey, you know, it turns out we had this power law distribution where you know almost all the returns came from um, you know our biggest winners getting into Airbnb or Uber that sort of thing, and nothing else really mattered. So what we should do is really." shift our strategy to be completely focused on maximizing our chance of getting, you know, one or a few of those huge outlier returns in our portfolio because that's what's worked for, you know, the best venture funds in the past. Um, the the maybe slightly more um, uh, theoretically sound version of that is just when you have very, very high risk ventures, which is what venture capital is built to do, right? It comes out of the, the semiconductor era of building, you know, massive factories and, and launching semiconductor products and things like that, where you had huge upfront costs, high risk, no real ability to predict sort of market demand. You needed to be compensated for that risk with very, very, very outsized returns um, at, at both the company level and at the sort of overall fund portfolio level, right? You needed to make sure that you you couldn't just generate a 2x fund, you needed a 5x fund or something to to really move the needle. And so you needed 100x outcomes to get to that 5x. Um, <clears throat> so that's the, that's the general um, 
I guess, history of, of that approach. It's interesting, Tracy, you know, you know, something we talk, we've been talking more and more about on the podcast, like this idea of like capital investment coming back mm. and actually spending. And then thinking about like all these companies over the last 10 years, like what capital did they really need? Like, for, like <laughs> software, it's like they didn't need to build a chip yeah. factory or a chip foundry. I, I was just going to say, I call this the, um, this overall dynamic, the peace dividend of the SaaS wars, right? So the idea of like a peace dividend where, you know, you, you just are left with all of this kind of infrastructure and stuff after the kind of bubbly phase of things. And um, you, you get to use all that stuff for free, right? And so now, yeah, you're right. It's like these software companies that are going to market are really not, they're not venture opportunities in multiple respects. And one of which is they're just not that capital intensive before you can start to de-risk and see if people actually want this thing. Well, presumably a lot of the money just went into trying to gain market share, right? And Become grow. a monopoly. Like, right. That was it. Um, but okay. So here's my big question based on that. I can't imagine anyone going out and sort of saying explicitly that they're unicorn hunting in the current environment. It just doesn't feel like an environment conducive to finding those types of companies and getting the funding for those types of companies. So what are venture capital firms, traditional VCs doing right now? Uh, I don't know if they would agree with the premise of your question, to be honest. Um, I think a lot of venture funds still think that, um, you know, the fundamental sort of approach is, is more or less the same. I mean, they're they're still looking for those kind of large outlier returns, especially if you're investing early stage. And their view is just, hey, you know, I think uh, maybe Mark Andreessen kind of said this a while back, and it's become kind of a, an ethos throughout the industry, which is that, you know, there's only a few huge outlier companies that matter every year, and your job is just to try to get into those, right? And, you know, the, the valuation you do it at doesn't really matter. Um, it's all about you know, making sure that you get into the Coinbase or the whatever thing that's going to generate 100x or 500x return for your fund. Um, I don't think that that approach has changed a ton right now for um, for the traditional early stage venture funds who've been at it for a while. So what are they doing right now, though? What or what? You know, so it's like you have this like, incredible 10 years in which the strategies have just worked so well and so beautifully uh, for, you know, at least 10 years, but probably more. But, you know, thinking about the big, you know, you mentioned Mark Andreessen. I think uh, A16Z was 2008, 2009, like right, essentially like mm-hmm. right at the bottom of the last crisis. So just like truly an incredible decade. Where do things stand now in terms of like strategy on June 13, 2022? Well, I think the dominant strategic consideration right now for VCs has a a little bit less to do with what's happening exactly now and about what's happened over the last few years because you know like you guys were talking about in terms of private valuations you know there's a bit of a of a one-way ratchet right where once you invest at a company at a particular valuation there's really a humongous amount of incentives not to uh, generate a down round not to raise more capital at a lower valuation and lock in that sort of negative return like you know stocks go up and down why is it that in private markets they're like down rounds are like so do everything to avoid a down round. Um, well, I mean, kind of like Tracy alluded to, there's a real sort of, um, you know, heads I win, tails you lose dynamic in private valuations, which is just, you know, when they're going up, 
you, you're able to report those quote unquote paper returns to your LPs as markups, right? So you're sending these updates to your LPs, um, you know, saying, hey, you know, our, our fund is now worth 2x what you invested. It's worth 2.5. Now it's worth three. And those are all based on those up rounds, right? Each time a new priced round happens, you mark your existing ownership up. And there's just a lot of sort of incentive not to want to send a quarterly report that says, hey, we're now a 2.2 fund versus a 2.5 because we took a really big markdown. Um, It's just part of the overall psychology, I think, between, you know, venture funds and their LPs, which is that those returns always go up and you're going to really stand out as an anomalous sort of thing for them if you're one of the few funds in their portfolio that's returning or that's you know marking sort of negative returns for a particular quarter or, or year um so that's that's really it it's like there's just a lot of incentive to to really navigate around that um to try and either convince the company to completely shift gears and you know cut their burn lay off staff start to focus on profitability so that they can quote unquote grow into those valuations right so that you know maybe they would never have gotten there in the typical sort of 12 to 18 months but if they can extend their runway to 3 years well then they can spend that 3 years getting to the point where they can raise at least a flat round or or an up round um or there'll be a lot of incentives to sort of structure around a down round because you know, if somebody comes in and says, "Hey, I want to invest more capital in this company," but you know, the last valuation was was sort of bananas, we're, we're not going to invest at that. Your your options are: you can either do the down round, right? You could say, "Fine, let's find a new price," or you can add in all kinds of you know liquidation preferences and special terms and things like that to keep the nominal sort of headline price you know the same or up. Uh, and everybody is kind of happier that way. There's there's also the dynamic of employee options, right? There's sort of um, um, a little bit of a dynamic there where employees don't want to see the headline valuation going down because their stock options are, you know, on a strike price from the last round and things like that. So it's so a huge amount of incentives to, um, to sort of not really accept the reality of lower valuations. So can you talk to us a little bit more then about how lower valuations or down rounds, how those actually come about? Like, because as you say, there are so many incentives to keep the valuation up as much as possible. And then the other thing that tends to happen is because these are illiquid markets, it feels like you could sort of resist the new pricing for quite a while. So what what is typically the process or the trigger that will lead to a lower valuation for a startup? For instance, is it just the company can't get any money without taking a lower valuation and they need the money like I'm just trying to understand exactly like what the trigger is that will have one company accept a lower valuation versus another that's able to like hold on for longer yeah so the first thing is that it's very very rare so so we're, we're basically trying to um generalize about an incredibly small anecdotal data set it seems to me like um you know as I think about the few instances I've heard of this, um, the most common scenario would be when a sort of new investor of a completely different archetype wants to come in and get involved, right? So this would be like when you would see sort of PE or hedge funds and things like that get involved. Um, Because if you are an investor in technology companies regularly, and this is your business, you know, you, you really just are highly incentivized to make sure that there's not a down round. In fact, you know, I I wrote a little thread to founders basically talking about how, you know, if you are um, 
you know, running a company that just raised a very, very large high valuation venture round, you are sort of misaligned with your investors. They're they're quite incentivized to um, to want you to sort of really double down and go big or go home, right? Like doing a down round is kind of like the worst option. They would rather you either sort of, you know, gut it out and and somehow hit the metrics that you need to raise an up round uh, or just fail, right? Um, you know, and, and so there's a lot of, of counter incentives to what would be the sort of rational strategy, which is to try and, you know, pivot to profitability, even though you are seeing some folks start to sort of preach about that as well. Um, you know, it's, it's just there's a ton of incentives against it, and you would probably do it if you had no other choice. Um, and you know, you got an offer from some sort of you know private equity entity or something like that to do a bridge round, um, where it can kind of be justified. Hey, we're working with these folks um, because they're just you know different types of investors. So of course, there's going to be worse terms with it. But it's a real negative signal in the industry. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you talk about from your perspective? So your investments are you're not taking the unicorn hunting approach because, as you've said, you believe that it's possible to invest in relatively early stage tech companies, but that don't have like high uh, downside risk. And so that actually you're not just trying to, oh, nine go to zero and one goes to a hundred billion or whatever it is. That being said, I'm sure this is, you know, this, some of the same macro stresses are going to apply to every company. So can you talk to us about like the advice you're giving? Is it the same as like you know, because every VC puts out these memos, cut, cut, you know, this is the time, profitability, mm-hmm. et cetera. But can you talk about what those conversations are like beyond just the sort of like the press release memo tweet thread level? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so to be clear, the reason that we think our thesis works is less about any kind of change in the validity of the venture capital model and more just about the ground sort of shifting under everyone's feet where a lot of software and kind of software enabled like e-commerce and things like that, uh, SaaS, all these kinds of products, they sort of shifted out of the venture profile, (laughs) right? Where they just became de-risked like we were talking about before. So it's more just that there's this segment over here that we think, you know, at least our strategy is valid, if not more applicable to these opportunities because they're not as capital and 
intensive and quite frankly not as risky. It, it, it doesn't change the fact that you know if you want to build factories in space or launch rockets, you know that are reusable and all this kind of stuff, you really do need to still um, you know go on that traditional venture capital approach as long as you're really having those winner take all dynamics at the at the other end. Um, but in terms of like the conversations we're having um, with companies, I mean. We uh, honestly, like our overarching um, message has been sort of stay the course. Like we we were sort of fighting a little bit of against the tide um, for the last couple of years as capital became really easy. So even founders that were maybe not really a fit for traditional venture were getting term sheets and saying, hey, this guy wants to give me $6 million. Should I take it? Um, and we were saying, well, you know, maybe, but, um, you know, you, you're going after a fairly niche market. You can, uh, yeah. But uh, follow up. how much did the appeal for these founders to take that, uh, how much was it uh, affected by opportunities to cash out early some of their shares, some of which even in probably the opportunity to make life-changing amounts of money, even in a relatively early round? Yeah, it's a really good question. We have not seen that very much in our portfolio, um, in part because you know most of our companies are optimizing for being capital efficient. The vast majority of them have not raised additional capital, so so we haven't seen a ton of that. But you did see, you know, quite a lot of that going on in the market um, the last couple of years, and um, I think it's a real function of the fact that you know the the entire venture community for the last two years was just getting completely squeezed. Um, and there was just a supply and demand dynamic going on where there was just an oversupply of of capital relative to um, you know the number of real venture scale game-changing opportunities, or at least the, the perceived uh, set of those. And so there was this competition to compete, right? And to offer better terms and to offer more attractive kind of secondary sales for yeah. the founders. Um, and you saw some sort of truly... Um, so some truly crazy stuff. I think the like first what? one that kind of hit the news was was Clubhouse early on, and the founders oh, took you know, two million dollars off the table. Yeah, remember that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and everyone was like, "Oh man!" Like they're barely, you know, they barely launched, and they just raised this huge, you know, third round in however many months, and the founders took two million dollars off the table, and that was news. And then later, over the couple of years, you saw, you know. Founders taking five million, ten million, wow. and two hundred million off the table. Well, um, who took two hundred you know, million off the table as a founder? Um, fact check me on that, but I believe it was reported that the founder of Hopin, the uh, virtual conference company. software. I've never yeah, heard they, of this. They kind of went from they went from Z, you know they were they got probably the biggest COVID boost of maybe any company, uh, uh, maybe Zoom aside, um, where uh, they they basically run virtual conference software and um, they're one of the sort of like steepest valuation trajectories I think anyone has ever seen. They went from kind of you know very low seed round to six billion dollar valuation and over the course of basically COVID less than two years. Um, and I believe it was reported that the founder took. Um, 200 million or more um, off the table. Amazing. Good for them. Good for them. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. so you... <laughs> I mean, it's hard to blame people for yeah, taking yeah. it, right? No, I, I mean, it, it's it. um, yeah. it's hugely misaligned with, you know, your your employees um, who, who certainly were not offered that same level of liquidity, um, you know, and, and now have a bunch of their stock options locked up at this kind of like very, very high valuation. And we'll see what happens to those. I think, um, you know, we're going to see a huge wave of employees see millions of dollars of equity wiped out. Hopin founder 
In June 2021, this is according to the Financial Times, nets 100 million pounds, so 130 million or something in share sales. Okay. Amazing. I had no idea. That's yeah. good for him. Anyway, sorry, Tracy, what were, what were you going to say? <laughs> uh, well, sorry to press on this, but um, just on valuations. Okay, so so on, in an up cycle, I guess, uh, you have this pressure on valuations and lots of money competing for the same thing. And so prices tend to get squeezed even higher. And actually, we spoke to Howard Lindzen about this back in February, but you also had you know, particularly big players like SoftBank who would come in and squeeze a company mm-hmm. much, much higher than it would be otherwise. What happens on the flip side of that when everything starts going down? Is it you know, people hold on because their incentive is to hold on and avoid booking these companies at lower valuations? Or does like a bunch of money get pulled and the cycle is Mm. is even worse on the way down? Yeah, good question. I mean, there's a, a bunch of different effects going on all at once right now. So maybe the biggest one is the pullback of the multi-stage hedge funds that got into VC over the last couple of years. Um, so notably, like Tiger Global and KOTU were two hedge funds that you know built um, very large uh, technology practices and raised dedicated funds for those and that sort of thing. And and they were deploying billions of dollars into the space up and down everything from seed rounds to Series A to late stage. And that was one of the primary things. If you think about like the the sort of you know marginal demand in the in the supply for for startup valuations they were really providing a, a large portion of that marginal demand where they were the the last people who would come in at 2x you know the price of the the next best offer um, and so that was doing a lot of the work to really push up those valuations um, I, I you know it's been sort of reported that and certainly seems to be the case that um, those folks you know they're they're not dedicated venture funds <laughs> they're sort of you know multi-stage cross-asset hedge funds and so they do seem to be pulling back quite a bit so I definitely think you'll see that dynamic play out where um, you know they they basically won't be coming into these rounds and marking them up in a huge way um, in terms of otherwise what happens I mean I I think we're going to see a bit of a delayed bloodbath, to be honest, right? There's an ability to sort of just hold on and wait it out. You know, if the company, you know, a company has raised at, you know, 10 times the valuation that they really should have, and they have 11 months runway in the bank, you know, what do you do? Well, it's going to be such a trivial amount of money relative to what people invested that you don't just like return the funds. You just kind of try to make it work, right? You just kind of hang on and and see if you can get lucky and hit that inflection point and maybe raise some more capital or maybe the market turns around. But if things stay as they are, I think, you know, over the rest of the year, you're going to see a lot, lot, lot of high flying, you know, late stage companies, um, maybe even the ones that just did big rounds of layoffs and things like that to try and stay alive. Um, You know, they're just not going to make it. You know, Tracy asked about uh, the soft banks, and you, of course, mentioned the, uh, you know, the Tiger Globals and all those. But then the other phenomenon, and again, this is something that uh, we chatted with uh, in one of our previous chats with uh, Howard Lindzen, is like, and he, he was talking about this, and you mentioned the squeeze that all these uh, VCs are feeling, that like, in March 2020, when, uh, uh, the, when the pandemic hit and everyone was at home, and uh, very quickly, asset prices started going up. 
and Zoom started taking off, that actually, like, you had this situation where, like, everyone became an angel investor. And everyone was, like, started, like, <laughs> hey, let's do a Zoom meeting. We don't even have to fly to meet you anymore. Let's chat for 15 <laughs> minutes. And also, maybe I have, like, a sub stack so I can promote your uh, company and my investment. Let's let's write a check. You have all these, like, fang-rich people, like Facebook, Google, Amazon employees who probably have, you know, maybe a few million in the bank or something or several million and want to cut uh, $50,000, $100,000 checks. Can you talk like how big of a phenomenon was that and how much, how did that, let's say new money or inexperienced money, can you talk about the effect that that had in sort of like competition and valuations? Yeah. So, I mean, you're right. And that there was just a huge, you know, it was everybody has a venture fund now was the kind of joke. And, um, you know, everybody started doing angel investing. Um, AngelList, uh, the, the platform for angel investing really contributed to this where they launched a pretty um, neat uh, fund product that allowed, you know, your your sub stackers and things like that to really easily and cheaply spin up a, a venture fund. Rolling fund? Yeah, the rolling funds. How did exactly. that work? I never looked up like how did the rolling funds work and talk to us about like what that the effect that had. Yeah, rolling fund was basically Angelist did a, you know, did this whole productized version of a venture fund where traditionally you'd have to pull in, you know, lawyers to do your docs and you need a fund administrator to do your back end and tax people to do your tax and all the stuff that did we have to do actually. We have like, you know, a, a team of 30 people that we fractionally use to sort of run our fund. Angelist said, "Hey, if you want to do traditional venture investing, we'll do the whole back office and by the way, we'll also make it really really approachable for individuals to be LPs in your fund. LPs are the, the limited partners who, who invest the capital into your fund um, by basically setting it up to where it's more of a subscription product. So you can actually just invest you know, $10,000 a quarter and it's a fixed, you know, flat number. You can make it up, down every quarter that you want. You can change it. So just added a lot more flexibility that I think brought in not just a whole bunch of new funds, but also a huge new influx, at least in, in volume, maybe not in total dollars, of LPs from folks who had, you know, done really well in crypto and done really well in their, you know, stock portfolios, decided to diversify 100K of that into, um, you know, a venture fund from someone that you know they admired on the internet um you know so so that dynamic really overall increased the there was sort of a bottoms up effect where there was a huge increase in the volume of capital out there chasing opportunities and then but the thing is like these are not price setters right so a lot of these funds that were set up you know they're writing relatively small checks and they're also not sort of super experienced VCs. And so when they go into a round, all they want to do is find an already priced and mostly full round, you know, and put their 50K or 100K into that round. And they just kind of take the price as, okay, well, that's somebody else's problem. But the problem is you had this top-down effect, which is all of these huge multi-stage funds getting involved. And that's the the hedge funds, as well as some of these really, really big funds like Sequoia and Dreesen Horowitz, these kind of folks. They were the ones, in many cases, coming down and setting the price at you know seed or, or series A, some of these early rounds. So you have these angels coming in with lots of new cash, and they're saying, hey, we want to get into this round, but we don't want to set the price. And then you have something like Tiger coming in and saying, cool, like we'll set the price, no big deal. The problem is those two groups are, are 
completely not aligned with each other. And in fact, they're actually selling different products to their LPs. The angels and the venture funds, they're trying to do the traditional thing. They're trying to put in their 100K and get you know 100X outcome on that, right? They're looking for those real outlier returns. The very, very large funds had essentially become, uh, even though nominally they would be sort of venture funds, they were basically growth private equity, right? They were raising billion do- multi-billion dollar funds. And the way that you move the needle on a multi-billion dollar fund is when you put you know, 50 million, 100 million into these companies at late stage, and then they IPO at 3x, and that's how you generate your sort of reasonable growth equity type of, of returns, right? And th- those would be your sort of like 2x to 3x kind of outcomes, not your 100x outcomes. And what these huge funds were doing is they were basically viewing the the seed rounds and the series A rounds as um, just kind of optionality, right? They were going in and they were buying the option, sometimes explicitly in the form of pro rata, which is I invest in your seed round and I have special terms that say, you know, I get to invest, you know, more and more at each subsequent round. Um, and then sometimes just kind of implicitly just by saying, hey, look, you know, we led your seed round. So let us lead your A and B and C and all that sort of stuff. And so you had these, these large players who are not really that concerned about the price at seed because that's not their game, right? But they're the ones setting the price. <laughs> and so the people who are trying to make all their returns on this difference between the seed round valuation and the ultimate valuation, now they're investing at four times, five times, 10 times higher than they were just several years ago. And so their returns are, you know, if all things are equal, unless the world kind of magically changes and and everybody IPOs at 100x higher, you're just going to have you know, uh, 10x, 5x, you know, 2x lower returns at seed. Um, so that was like one of the big dynamics right there, which was that people who were basically nominally VCs, but were actually running different products that were more like private equity were the ones setting the price. And then you had this huge influx of new capital that was just very happy to go along with, with the price the and put capital work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this was actually going to be my next question, but I'm so used to thinking of Silicon Valley at this point as like, 
you know, aggressive pricing, lots of cash pouring in, the sort of excesses of venture capital. If we get a big downturn in the market, would you expect to see some of that behavior or some of the way that the industry is structured and incentivized start to change? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the so some of the stuff that you maybe are thinking of in terms of just, you know, negative unit economics and things like that, I, I don't know how much those will go away. Um, you know, if you are in if you're in a winner take all market, sometimes it does make sense to, you know, underprice your product and grow really, really fast, right? So there's always going to be incentives for that. Some things that I think definitely will change, um, are uh, a, lo- a lot of the stuff around the way that um, the competition for employees has sort of evolved, where you know compensation structures for senior engineers have just are just absolutely eye popping. I don't I don't know if you if you've seen any data there, but you know you have folks just getting you know 600k base salary and 400k a year in stock options and all this kind of stuff for for sort of mid level engineers like just really truly bananas offers going on, on on top of you know tons of perks and and all kinds of stuff like that so i do think you'll start to see a pretty significant softening in terms of um the competition for for employees i think you know it's hard to to sort of uh cry crocodile tears for um you know really really well paid tech employees but they are going to suffer the Brunt, I think, of this with um, you know pretty significant losses to to um, the value of their their stock options, as well as probably um, you know much less competitive uh, offers as they were able to kind of sort of jump from big tech co to big tech co, kind of doubling their salary every two or three years. Um, you know, I think that that's something that you'll see um, pair back quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I want to actually press further on that. Uh, you know, it almost seems to me, and I don't know if this is true, but one might speculate that in a sense, even, and I'm just guessing, like, I wonder, like, you know, in a sense, are even employees of a sort of startups essentially become, def- you know, start taking um, an angel investor mindset? Like, if you think mm-hmm. that equity in a startup mm-hmm. is going to potentially 10x or 100x, or potentially, you know, you're thinking like you have multiple options for where you're going to go work because you're a talented engineer. And you start thinking like, well, which one is going to be the 100x or which one is going to be the 10x and actually like make a fortune on some of this early stage stock. But I'm just like wondering if you can like talk a little bit more about like how this relationship is going to change. And, you know, even like at FANG level, if, if, if the assumption no longer exists that stocks automatically go up. That it's like, yeah, of course I want to get paid in the stock because stocks will go up, you know, year after year after year. If that assumption goes away, like how do some of the uh, employee, the the company employee relationships start to change or people thinking about their own careers? Yeah, I mean, I think the folks who are at, you know, Google and Amazon, it's a little bit above my pay grade to say much about how that dynamic's going to play out. Um, But, you know, because I just... I'm not really that familiar with how, um, you know, the public market prices affect kind of employee compensation and things like that. But in the private market, this is really, really acute. Um, I think you're right that there was this similar kind of just, you know, everything goes up a little bit like YOLO mentality over the last few years um, with employees as they were evaluating their comp packages. And, you know, one of the things we're seeing is a realization from a lot of folks where, you know, Basically, if you were issued a ton, maybe millions of dollars worth of, of stock options at some of the kind of crazy valuations in a private company that we saw over the last you know couple of years, um, 
you actually not only do you need to mark those down a little bit, you know, like if you have a public company, you actually might need to mark those down to zero. Um, and the reason being, if your company lays you off in private markets, you often have this this very difficult and silly rule where you have a ninety day option exercise window, right? And so you need to not only if you get laid off. To, to even retain any of that equity, you actually need to go out and buy it. You need to either have the capital or borrow it to buy that you equity. You might need to pay taxes on it if you, mm-hmm. if, you, if it's still if the price that you're buying it at is above the price you're the options you're listed at, right? Exactly. I mean, it's so financially sort of onerous that very, very few employees, you have to already be someone who had a previous exit or something and have, you know, many tens of millions in the bank to be able to, to make so this messed kind of up. a bet. And then like with the execs, they like <laughs> give them a deal. It's like, oh, well, like, we'll give you a year or, you you know, you could keep your, I don't know, it always seems like very, like very cruel to the uh, the employee level anyway. It is. It's really. It's really bananas. And then you layer. So it's difficult even in normal times for it to work. And then you layer in the fact that you know the company just raised at a five billion dollar valuation, and you know the whispers in the private markets are that it's worth you know nine hundred million. And so now you have to make this bet to buy that equity and then gut it out and wait and hope that it IPOs at you know over that five billion dollar valuation that your your um, options are issued at, right? And it doesn't work exactly that way but that's the basic dynamics of it where you're making this this fundamental bet on the company that just laid you off <laughs> in order to, to sort of get your equity and you, you're even seeing sort of you know and so basically all that adds up to most of these folks are just going to walk away from that equity right it's just not ever going to be valuable and in fact you saw um recently there was a a very extreme example of this but uh so Bolt, which is sort of uh, famously high flying, um, some would say overvalued. Um, I would say that um, <laughs> companies um, that uh, you know they did they sort of came up with this quote unquote solution for this, which is that they would actually loan their employees the money to go ahead and buy that equity, so that they would own it, so they wouldn't have this ninety day op- option uh, exercise window. The problem is they're then taking out personal recourse loans, right? So, you know, this loans have have the rights to go and seize their employees' assets uh, from the company to own this equity. And if there is a down round, right, or something like that, um, their, their loans are going to be underwater and they're going to have personal recourse against that, right? It's ab- absolutely crazy. And and there was a, a feature recently of at least one employee because they, they did that. And then a couple months later, they announced a big round of layoffs. And so there was an example, at least one of an employee who took out, you know, sort of six figures of, of debt to buy that equity, then got laid off and now has, you know, 90 days to pay it basically, to come up with that money and to buy it. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Oh, wow. Um, well, okay. So on this topic of leverage, so this is a question I have about, I, I guess, the market overall at the moment, like how much leverage is actually embedded in the system, especially as we see, you know, um, crypto prices go down and, and things like that. But um, when it comes to venture capital, I mean, there was an article that Bloomberg published last week, I think it was, about um, the D1 hedge fund borrowing billions of dollars in order to purchase stakes in private companies. How much of that is going on? Like, How much leverage is embedded in venture capital such that when valuations start going down, it could become problematic? 
I think very little. Um, even the the largest sort of venture funds, um, you know, the, the Sequoias and Andreessen's of the world um, don't really use leverage. You, you use sort of um, sort of convenience products in terms of like capital call lines of credits and things like that. Um, just basically kind of bridging the gap between when you invest in a company and when you call the capital from your from your LPs. Um, but the vast majority of traditional venture players are using, you know, no debt. So I think it would just be, you know, the few folks you know, coming from the sort of hedge fund world and that sort of thing that um, might be using leverage. But I mean, it's kind of crazy because they're, they're not cash flowing assets. So you really are taking a, a, a very, very high risk bet um, by by levering those up. And traditionally, most investors in the space are not doing that. You know, I'm curious, you mentioned the, folk, the crossover funds that came from the hedge fund world. And of course, the preeminent one that everyone talks about is Tiger Global. And it seems to me that you know, as you mentioned, they're not really VC in a sense. They're not really hedge fund in a sense. They're sort of late stage private. You know, if you think of like a hedge fund, it's like, okay, like we're going to pivot to uh, energy investing this this quarter because the macro environment's uh, changed. It seems to me like mm-hmm. you cannot do that with a late stage growth investing. You are all in on one strategy and you can't just like pivot. It's like, yeah, hey, we're, we're, we're value investors this year. We're, we're oil investors this year. Like you're all in. Like, what do you think is like, how important were the, had those entities become like how, to the overall startup ecosystem? And like, do you think they're going to like, what, what, what do you see as like the future of them? I mean, I think like, I've, I think Tiger is down 50%, extraordinarily amount of money lost, especially when you think, probably think about the inflows that came in in recent years huge uh, dollars up in smoke like what is this sort of like is does that model come back in the downturn or does it get rethought yeah i mean also bear in mind that um you know those headline lost figures that are being reported for tiger that's their public markets right They're, that's not even factoring in all the venture investing that they've done for for all the reasons we've been talking about there just haven't been down rounds so you have this dynamic where you know you you have these uh realized losses on your public portfolio and unrealized losses on your private portfolio and it's it's a real tough situation um you know i i I, I think this is going to be a bit of a one-off anomaly. Um, my macro kind of basic view is that for the last couple of years in these zero interest rate environments, you had these really, really vast pools of capital, right? These just you know sovereign wealth level kind of pools of capital that were sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars and just sort of frantically looking for anything that would generate yield, right? Because there was just nothing, right? Bonds were useless, commodities were useless, like everything was just useless. And, you know, if you need to put $10 billion to work and get some kind of good return on it, your options were just incredibly limited. And I think into that space stepped in a couple of hedge funds who said, hey, yeah, we can put, you know, I mean, I think Tiger invested an entire multi-billion dollar fund in less than a year, right? They said, hey, we can put that money to work and we it can is, generate- They would do like a check a know, day, right? Like, that, like just churn them out, huh? Yeah, and, and just very large checks as well. But I think it yeah. was a, 
I have to look it up. Maybe it was a $3 billion or a $6 billion fund that they deployed in like under a year or plus or minus a year. Um, and, and that was the product they were selling, right? At the end of the day, you know, all funds are selling a product to their LPs. And, and the product they were selling was, you know, we are going to take huge, huge pots of money. We're going to absolutely fire hose it into technology companies at the late stage. Um, we have a bunch of people who have some venture experience. So like I said, we're going to, we're going to be investing early to get that optionality to put a lot more capital capital in later. But ultimately, they were there to serve this, you know, this, this demand for some amount of yield in a very uncompetitive market. And that dynamic is changing right now, right? Like if you look at the public markets now, you're like, hey, actually, there's probably quite a lot of yield to be had here. And you know, interest rates are going up. So maybe, maybe bonds are going to be more attractive and stuff like that. So I think that while the model is not necessarily going to be like disproven or or abandoned, I just think the demand for it is going to get dispersed across a whole bunch of other assets. And I really doubt that we'll see, you know, multi-stage hedge funds raising more further incredibly large kind of uh, late stage tech um, funds and and doing what they've been doing over the last couple of years. Hmm. Uh, you know, Joe and I started the conversation talking about how uh, when things are going badly in the public market, we we kind of see just how badly because we can pull up a chart and watch the line go down. It's a little bit trickier with um, the world of startups and private equity and private money and venture capital mm-hmm. and things like that. What, in your opinion, is the best thing to watch out for to to try to gauge how bad things are getting? It's a good question. I mean, the one interesting dynamic here, which is that valuation is going down, but software companies are still doing very well. Mm-hmm. You can even look in the public markets. You, yeah, you see these companies that are, hey, we got you know another record year for you know revenue is up, uh, you know losses are down, etc. Like they're, they're, the fundamental business of most technology companies, and we see that in our portfolio as well, even at the the earlier stage that we're investing in, like you know companies are not affected by this kind of macro change um, in terms of their underlying business. It's purely a question of the fact that the same assets are being, you know, repriced uh, much, much lower. And so, um, you know, I guess the 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 thing you want to look out for is basically just that squeeze, right? Where an otherwise good business that is actually still growing and still getting closer to product market fit and still growing their customer base and all that sort of stuff, um, they just... You know, raised their their they raised too much, and so they have to hit certain you know growth trajectory targets to to raise their next round, and um and they just kind of have to do that. But it, there there really aren't leading indicators for this kind of thing because you're just so incentivized to just try to hit those hurdles up until the last possible second, and then you say, oh, we couldn't raise the round, you know, like you saw that with um, with Fast recently, where, you know, they were, uh, the week before, they were talking about all their plans and everything, and it's like, you're you're trying to create this forward-looking, you know, up into the right curve, and the perception of that, until you just can't raise the capital, and then you shut down, right? Um, so, it's going to be a lot of surprises, I think. So, real quick question, I have two questions one is a short one you know you say like the fundamentals by and large look strong this is see would you say this is distinctly different from the dot-com era in which is sort of infamously all these different dot-coms they were each other's customers so to speak and so one company would raise a bunch of vc Mm -hmm. and then take out a bunch of ads on yahoo.com or whatever and so they were sort of all the same like would you say like that phenomenon just like 
doesn't is not as significant when you look at the underlying business quality of you know some of these software companies. I think it's far, far less prevalent. Um, you know, especially if you look at a portfolio like within our portfolio, we are primarily investing in SaaS companies, and those SaaS companies are usually selling to different verticals or industries. So we're really sort of diversified across you know the underlying customer base of our portfolio companies' customers. Um, you do have a little bit of a circularity there. Um, you know, I, I think I saw it was kind of a jokey headline or something, but it was like uh, somebody launches a fintech for fintechs um, coming out. I do think fintech is one area where you do have a little bit of that circularity where, you know, everybody is everybody else's customer and they may all sort of go down um, simultaneously. Um, but there's a lot, lot, lot less of that effect than than the dot-com era. So I just have one last question, and that is uh, conversations with LPs. My understanding is when a, uh, a fund raise, you know, and you, you have, uh, here's a multi-billion dollar fund, I don't think they get all the money wired to them right away. And then over time, they collect mm -hmm. it from the LPs who have made these commitments. Do any of those, are, how strong are those commitments? And you know, you mentioned that there are alternatives and that maybe part of the issue going forward is going to be like, no, uh, late stage growth is not the only place to get returns. And so how do you see like the relationship evolving between funds and their LPs in this environment? I think this is going to be one of the most interesting dynamics to play out over the next kind of 18 months. And I'm really not sure which way it goes, which is the fact that um, you will hear a lot of folks commentating on on the venture market say there's never been so much dry powder. Yeah. Right. If you look and, and, and that's what you're referring to. Right. Yeah, you go yeah. out and you raise a billion dollar fund. You, do, you don't get it wired. In fact, you get almost none of it wired to you. You go out, you make commitments to invest in startups, and then you call that capital from LPs and you assume that they're going to be able to fulfill those those commitments. Um, and so people are sort of adding up those headline fund sizes and saying like, wow, there's just a ton of you know uninvested funds out there. But it's not literal piles of cash sitting around waiting to be put into startups. It's commitments from LPs. And those LPs are under a lot of pressure right now, right? They're diversified across public markets, maybe crypto, et cetera. They're seeing liquidity squeezes. And so, you know, hopefully they're they're doing their job and and they have you know good risk management and they have um a ton of you know or they have the, the capital sort of set aside um but i do think there's going to be a very interesting sort of um implicit and explicit negotiation between fund managers and lps um that that raised or you know had committed very very large funds right now to sort of say hey you know maybe let's slow down the pace here a little bit um you know, coming from yeah. the LPs because um, these are long-term relationships. Like, yes, you they did sign a, an, a, a um, limited partner agreement that obligates them to to meet your capital calls, but also you want to keep them around and investing in you for the next you know twenty years. And you don't like now is not the time to really put the squeeze to them and say you know you committed this capital, we have to invest it, um, live up to your end of the deal, or else um, there will be some. Amount of that, but it's going to be very interesting to see That's how that plays out. And I think there's a real risk that there's actually not nearly as much dry powder as everyone is um, predicting uh, because of this dynamic where LPs are going to really push back and say, hey, like, let's slow this pace down a lot. Let's deploy this over three years instead of one year, right? That sort of thing. Hmm. All right. Uh, Tyler Tringas of Calm Fund, thank you so much for uh, for joining Odd Lots. Thanks. It was that awesome. Was, that was great, Tyler. Yeah, thanks, Thank Tyler. you so much. I learned a ton from that. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This was really cool. 
until yeah. Joe, I thought that was a really interesting conversation. And one of the things I really like about it is, I guess, Tyler's emphasis on incentives. Yeah. Right. And like, I mean, obviously, in traditional finance, in public markets, there are different players with different incentives. But I feel like that's just magnified in venture capital. And I feel like when you look at the ecosystem of how it works with the funds and the LPs, everyone has slightly altered incentives. And so it leads to these interesting dynamics like the ones that Tyler was describing. Well, there's so many. uh, Yeah, so many that he described that I hadn't really thought about or understood until he articulated them. But you know, for example, obviously, if you're the uh, founder of a startup that can raise at a $5 billion valuation and take $100 million off the table early in your career, mm. that's really great. But it is really problematic for employees that potentially have years and years and years before they're going to see any uh, liquidity on their equity. And in the meantime, maybe they want to switch careers and have to buy back their stocks. So, you know, that's just one example. But uh, also, you know, the issue with do you really want to like call your LPs right now and tell them they have to pony up the cash? Uh, <laughs> that's going to be sort of an awkward conversation at a minimum. Yeah, I, I guess like the older I get, the more experienced I get in the financial industry, I just think everything is ruled by people not wanting to have to make that one phone call. <laughs> it's just right. Everyone loves cash at key times and no one wants a call where they have to give up that cash. <laughs> it's all about the phone calls. There was uh, uh, the, the other thing that I thought, well, there was numerous things. You know, the, the I don't know, unholy marriage between the sort of like <laughs> sub-stack angelist VCs at the low end or sort of like, let's do the VC thing. And then except basically being price takers for what these sort yeah. of like big funds was like a really interesting dynamic. And you can just see how like someone in the middle or someone who's like a kind of normal VC, that's not one of these mega funds, but also not someone who's just sort of like spun up an angelist fund in April 2020 would like get really squeezed as he put it by this sort of uh, huge influx of cash coming into the market. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I guess like, it's just going to be really interesting to watch the next year or so, it, I imagine. Yeah, what did he use a, a good term? I don't the, basically just oh, the delayed bloodbath. Did he? Say yeah, that? I thought yeah. that was really. And so it's like we don't really know yet how this is going to be play out, but everyone is an incentive to keep the numbers up nominally. Right, and this is the classic thing about illiquid markets, yeah. right? When things start going badly, it can take a while for that to play out because people have the ability to resist some of the pricing pressures, um, but not forever. So the timing of it is also going to be interesting. I think totally. Lot, lots, lots more to talk about on this topic. Yeah. All right. uh, Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Tyler Tringas of The Calm Fund. He is at Tyler Tringas. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, at Carmen Arman. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts on Twitter under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.